Amen. Jesus, there is no name like your name, for you have been given the name above every name, that at your name, every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord now and forever and ever to the glory of God Almighty. And Father, at the sound of your name, darkness, lies, rejection, our past, they tremble. Father, would we today recognize, realize, and receive the power in the name of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Michael Dolan. Thank you. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning. For anyone who I haven't met yet, my name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. A special welcome to you. I have seasonal allergies. That's why I sound like the Marble Man looks. Um, we are in the middle, literally dead center, of our sermon series titled, Thriving in Babylon, which takes us through the Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, Daniel, as you will recall, or if you're not familiar, was one of Jerusalem's best and brightest when he was taken by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon when Jerusalem was conquered. God orchestrated that captivity, and within it, he orchestrated Daniel's rise to power, to status, to favor within the Babylonian Empire. And one of the main ways, if not the main way, that Daniel curried favor, if you'll remember, is the ability that God gave him to interpret dreams and visions. And today in chapter 7, where we're going to spend our time, we're going to get more of that. We're going to get more dreams, more visions given to Daniel by our Lord. Now, the book of Daniel has some technical features to it that are worth mentioning because they help us properly handle, properly interpret, and therefore apply the Word of God. Chapters 1 through 6 in Daniel are written as historical narrative, literally history. Chapters 7 through 12 are prophecy or foretelling of the will of God. Now, this is not fortune-telling type stuff. There's no crystal ball here. If chapters 1 through 6 are historical fact, chapters 7 through 12 are future fact. And chapters 7 through 12 are also written as apocalyptic literature, end times. This type of literature was literally the product of these Judeo-Christian writings. And you put these two types together and what we have is God revealing to man the future of history and how it all ends. And if you want to sound extra sanctified, tomorrow you can tell your coworkers that your church is now engaged in a sermon series covering eschatology. Ooh, what's that? That's a Christian doctrine that deals with end times, the final judgment, and the eternal destiny of your soul. It's like perfect water cooler stuff, right? 
Now, prophecy, the apocalypse, rapture, tribulation, eschatology, this is big money stuff. Books, movies, conferences. And some Christians are beyond fascinated with this stuff. They are captivated by it. It is big money stuff because it is big interest stuff. Election time. War breaks out. A volcano erupts. And if I can give you another opinion, which I I think is a pretty fair observation, at least as I see it, most of what I hear on YouTube, read in articles, read in books that passes off these days as end times prophecy commits at least one, if not all three, of these cardinal errors. Number one, they are impregnated with fear. Number two, they just lead to divisiveness within the body of Christ. And number three, they claim to know not just the how it all goes down, but when. Now, when it comes to end times, forget what I say. Jesus states categorically, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Pop quiz, who knows the when? So if someone claims to know the when, who are they claiming to be? Now, confession time. The apocalypse, millennial reign, pre-trib, post-trib, rapture, this topic does not capture one ounce of my interest. By the end of the sermon, I will tell you why. And I think that there are more of you out there like me. That if you were reading through the book of Daniel on your own, you would end chapter 6, flip to chapter 7, and just keep flipping. To obsess about end times is not biblical. But it's also unbiblical to be ignorant of them. We are on the cusp of another U.S. election which will be mired in controversy and have people going out of their minds. Wars will not stop. Natural disasters will not cease. And what Daniel chapter 7 can teach us is so valuable because it helps us live with the end in mind. So what I want to do today is I want to look at Daniel chapter 7, but do so with a framework that we can use to distill any prophecy of the end times that we come across. My prayer for this message for the last couple weeks has been that we are not just informed but encouraged to be peacemakers, to be thermostats, not thermometers, to be ambassadors of our heavenly kingdom with an eye on the sky and our hands on the plow. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. It's page 726 of the Blue Bible in the pew back in front of you. And the three themes which emerged for me from Daniel chapter 7, which I think create a helpful framework, if you find them useful, are the following. Number one, In God we trust. Number two, to God we turn. And number three, with God we triumph. All right, let's go. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. 
and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. That A better translation is boastful, proudful, really blasphemy. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one, like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nation, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastful, blasphemous, great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down the three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and he shall think to change the times and the laws and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. It's three and a half years, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. 
and the kingdoms and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is heavy, heavy stuff. This is confusing stuff. This tempts us to just turn the page, but your word goes out and it never returns void. Therefore, there is a a purpose within this word for us here today, individually and collectively. So, would you reveal that to us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Simplify matters that we may walk trusting you, turning to you, and with you triumphing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? What are we dealing with in this? Now, I said earlier that the book of Daniel has some technicalities that are worth mentioning, and here is another. Daniel is written in what is called a chiastic structure. This is a literary device that is used to repeat themes, and a really cool byproduct of it was that It made the writing as a whole really difficult to corrupt through copy or translation. And the structure kind of works like this. You have, have, say, theme A, theme B, and theme C. Let's say those are three chapters, one, two, and three. Then chapter three would repeat, then chapter four would repeat, chapter two and chapter, then the first chapter would repeat. So you get this repeating sort of winding theme or or structure through the book of Daniel. So if you tried to corrupt any part of Daniel, you would have to corrupt the entire thing or else the structure would reveal the corruption. Now the structure through chapters 7 and 8 looks like this. In chapter 1, you get an introduction. In chapter 2, you get four earthly kingdoms and one heavenly kingdom. Remember chapter 2 was the, um, it was the huge statue, right, that had the, the different parts of metal to it that represented the different kingdoms. And the kingdom at the end was God's kingdom that smashed the statue. Chapter 3, tribulation and deliverance, the fiery furnace. Chapter 4, divine humiliation. This was Nebuchadnezzar. Divine, chapter 5 repeats chapter 4. Divine humiliation, this was the end of Babylon. Tribulation and deliverance, you see we're repeating the structure. It was Daniel and the lion's den. Chapter 7, mirrors chapter 2, four earthly kingdoms and one heavenly kingdom. Chapter 8, tribulation and deliverance. That's the chiastic structure. So when you look at chapters 2 and 7, they are the same theme. Four earthly kingdoms and one heavenly kingdom. You can see the similar revelation in them, and this structure gives us guardrails for our interpretation. And also, Daniel uses this Hebraic literary concept that applies specifically to biblical prophecy called repetition and expansion, meaning the repetition of the four earthly kingdoms and the one heavenly kingdom repeats Chapter 2, 7, 8, and 11. And every single time it repeats, we get more and more details. So all of this gives us guardrails for this interpretation. Daniel's vision tells us 
Four great winds of heaven stirring up the sea, from which four different beasts come out of. The four winds of heaven represent the power and the providence of God. This is the hand of God orchestrating all of history to his will. The sea was a metaphor or image of the Gentile nations, but for the Hebrews, the sea carried this sort of double meaning with it of chaos and darkness. The sea is a place of, of darkness and uncertainty and unpredictability, and you can't, you, it can't be controlled. This first beast, like a lion, but it has wings, and as Daniel is watching, the wings get plucked out. It stands on its feet like a man and is given the mind of a man. And like Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, where the statue's head of gold represents the kingdom of Babylon, this winged lion also represents Babylon. The winged lion was literally the symbol of Babylon during those times. It was printed on the back of their coins. And remember, God caused Nebuchadnezzar to lose his mind and crawl around like an animal for seven years. And when Nebuchadnezzar recognized God's sovereignty, God restored his humanity, his mind of a man, if you will. First beast is Babylon. The second beast, like a bear, but raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. This represents the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, which conquered the Babylonians. We read about that in Daniel chapter 5. Everyone in Babylon goes to bed under Babylonian rule, and they wake up to King Darius of the Medes and Persians. Now, perhaps Daniel sees the bear raised up on one side because the Persian influence in that kingdom was much greater than the influence of the Medes. And a bear is a creature that mauls, just tears to pieces its prey, and that is exactly the violence of the Persian kingdom. The three ribs probably represent the three components of the Medo-Persian Empire, Babylon to the west, Lydia to the north, and Egypt to the south. The third beast, like a leopard that has four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads. This empire was most likely the Grecian Empire, which conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And leopards are fast, and there was no expansion, no conquest like that of Alexander the Great. In 12 years, and by the age of 30, he conquered the entire world. But by the age of 33, he died from an illness. And his kingdoms were divided up into four regions under the dominion of his four generals, the four heads. Then we come to the fourth beast, terrifying, smashes everything, ten horns, a little one sprouting up among them, speaking blasphemy against the Most High God. This final beast represents the empire of Rome. We see the Ancient of Days, who is God and the Son of Man. Now, there are 81 references in the four Gospels to the Son of Man. 52 of them are unique references, and every single one of them is from Jesus, about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Son of Man. Now, with all of that in mind, let's dive in with the first part of our framework, my first point, in God we trust. We read this prophecy in Daniel 7. We see the connection between 2 and 8, 
and 11, and we see similar revelation given to the Apostle John in the very last book of the Bible. Hundreds of years later, look at this, Revelation 13, John writes, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads, 10 diadems, those are crowns on it, horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. Does this sound familiar at all? And so when I read God give two people hundreds of years apart the same revelation, and when we stand on this side of history and we look back seeing and knowing that the vast majority of these revelations have been fulfilled, I'm left with one clear conclusion. That God is in control and Satan is not. God does not guess. He knows. He does not dance to the music of time. He orchestrates it. He changes the times and the season. It is God who sets up kings and removes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, not because he has it, but because he is it. It is God who rules and reigns over all of history, past, present, and future. And as King Nebuchadnezzar says of God in chapter 4, he does according to the will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It is God who calls the shots. He's the rainmaker. He draws the lines, and he does not share his throne with anyone ever. Through this vision, God reveals to Daniel really, really hard things. Persecution of the saints. One beastly kingdom who trample the saints after another. But God calls Daniel's vision higher. He could have just given Daniel the heads up on these four kingdoms to come, right? But God wanted Daniel to live and serve with the end in mind. And he wants the same for us. Listen to verse 9 and 10 again. This gives me chills. As Daniel looked, thrones were placed. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure like wool, pointing to his absolute righteousness. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued out and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So when we see the disintegration of values and morals in society, when we see beastly kingdoms doing beastly things, when we hear of apostasy within the church of Christ, when we see and taste persecution, when we experience a great falling away which seems to be accelerating now, when we see our great nation in shambles, mired in dysfunction and division, our hearts hurt and our prayers ascend, but our faith is not shaken even when tested because our faith is not in anything that this world has to offer, good, bad, or indifferent. It is in God that we trust. Now, many, many of you know our oldest daughter, Ava, and many of you know Mark and Leanne's daughter, son, Evan. Both of them graduated from high school this past spring, 
and are now freshmen at Baylor University in Texas. We all flew them down last week to move them in. On Thursday night, all of the freshmen and their families gathered for a family picnic and a last goodbye. A last goodbye? For 18 years, Ava was under my roof, under my care, under my protection. Now she's 1,886.4 miles away from me. <laughs> Did I teach her enough? Did I spend enough time with her? Did I love her enough? What if something happens? I can't, I can't get to her. And to end the picnic, the chaplain of Baylor gave a blessing over the students. And as I looked up, I saw 10,000 plus parents laying their hands on their students. And in unison, we commended our children into the hands of the Lord. I'm not on the throne. I never have been, and I never will be. And that is good news for Ava and ultimately, freedom for me. God is in control. It is in him that I trust. And it's not only in God we trust, but to God we turn. As I said, this prophecy in Daniel proves to me, yet again with the highest level of confidence, that I can put my trust and faith in God. And it also proves to me with the highest level of conviction that I can turn to him. Well, if my faith and trust is in God, what does it mean by turning to him? Now, this could get dicey. Listen, I stand guilty of what I think many of you will be convicted of now. So please know, I am in this with you. I am not above this. But we have to align with scripture, period, new paragraph. We must stop turning to earthly kingdoms for that which only heaven can provide. We pledge our allegiance to sexuality. We know, God's, we know what God's word says. It's not a matter of information. It's a matter of obedience and surrender. We pledge our allegiance to money, believing it provides ultimate freedom and security. We pledge our allegiance to pride and ego and career and power and status. But we also pledge our allegiance to politics, believing that if this person gets elected, all will be well. And I am just as guilty, trust me. But when I do that, when I say that, I am literally out of line with what Scripture says. Now, I'm not saying we do not stand firm on our biblically informed political views. I'm not saying we suddenly stop caring. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that we do that with a biblical perspective in mind. God's word here in Daniel and in numerous other places is crystal clear. Things on earth are only going to get worse before they get better. Welcome to church, right? Like, <laughs> the regression of this world continues through the arc of time, irrespective of who gets elected. That's not my opinion. 
That's, that's God's word. Look at what's revealed to Daniel, and the thrust of my point rests in one single word. If you want to know biblically when this all turns around, I give you verse 21 and 22. As I looked, Daniel writes, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until, everyone say, until, until the ancient of days came. Now, I believe this little horn is the Antichrist. Like, put that in your bank somewhere or chuck it. I don't, like, I'm just telling you, that's what I, I could be way off on that. I believe this little horn is the Antichrist, which is not some abstract concept in Scripture. We read about this person in 2 Thessalonians, 1 John, Revelation, Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 24. So this person is not an abstract concept at all. War is declared on the saints, and this figure prevails over them in his persecution of them until, until what? Until when? Until God comes and sits in judgment. Any other answer is wrong. This is why we should not and cannot turn to earthly kings or earthly kingdoms for the fulfillment that only heaven can provide. They all turn to dust. Do you know what happens when we do turn to them? What happens when we turn to the beastly kingdoms? Beastly things, gossip, slander, pride, division, hatred, suspicion. But offered to us in turning to God and God alone is ultimate freedom and ultimate unity. Freedom because our hope is not grounded in what's going to perish. Our hope is not grounded in what's going to turn into dust. And unity because we are grounded and what will forever endure. God's kingdom is not a geographic kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. It doesn't rise out of the sea like the others. Brothers and sisters, like Daniel, our vision is being called to a higher plane, not a horizontal one, a vertical one. The object of eternal worship that Daniel sees is not sexuality. It's not money. It's not pride. It's not ego or some political figure. It is God and God alone. Why? Because he's infinitely better than anything and everything this world has to offer. And by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, we can have that now. So if we don't worship that stuff for all of eternity, why would we worship it now? God invites us into ultimate freedom and ultimate hope when we turn to him. This is absolutely what I want. This is what I want for all of you. And this is what our world needs. Freedom from lies. Freedom from the grip of darkness and deception. Eternal hope. But please realize, we cannot give what we do not have. And so we first need to trust in God alone and turn to him alone. So where is the good news in all of this? Where is the gospel in the midst of beasts and persecution and suffering and horns and antichrists? 
Last point. With God we triumph. And again, the thrust of my point rests on one word. But it's one word that absolutely changes everything. If you are struggling, when you struggle, if you're a lamb in a family of lions, when you're alone, scared, facing uncertainty, outcast for your faith, outcast for your values, a lone voice for God in the wilderness, if you spend time in tears questioning whether or not God is on your side, when it appears that all is lost and the world is folding in on itself, when it seems that darkness is won and evil rules and reigns, I offer you again verse 21 and 22, but this time verse 22 in its entirety. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days come and judgment go, was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Judgment is given for the saints of the Most High. This is our inheritance in the Lord, which means that it is not darkness that wins. It's not chaos that wins. It's not the beast of loneliness or depression or cancer or ALS or addiction. It's not the beast of rejection, the beast of your past, the beast of your secret sin. It's not the beast of lust or lies that wins. It's not the beast of politics or popularity, not the beast of natural disasters like the wildfires in Maui. It's not the beast of COVID or lockdowns or viruses or sickness or disease. It's not the beast of death that wins, for it was the death of death death in the death of Christ. This is not a competition. It's not some close call. This does not end with a final buzzer beater or in overtime. Every struggling saint, listen to these words of future fact, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Verse 28, this is the end of the matter, period. Yeah, but what if your interpretation about the beast is wrong? Good news, this is the end of the matter. But what about the thousand-year reign and tribulation? Good news, this is the end of the matter. Yeah, but it sure looks like darkness is winning. Good news, this is the end of the matter. Brothers and sisters, how do we not just survive? How do we thrive in Babylon? We live and we serve with the end in mind. We do not fight for victory. We fight from it. The lion, the bear, the leopard, the horns, the dragon, they don't stand a chance against the lamb. Jesus comes back. There's a final judgment. Evil is destroyed. No more death. No more suffering. No more tears. The saints inherit the kingdom and live in the light and love of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. That is the end of the matter. Go forth then as ambassadors of the eternal kingdom, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, armed with the ministry of reconciliation. It is in God we trust. It is to him we turn. 
and it is with him that we triumph. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we praise God for your word. We, we praise you for the revelation that you gave to Daniel. We thank you for these eternal truths that while there is much to be discovered, much to be discerned, much to be prayed about, still history yet to be written, we know the end. We know the last chapter. We know how this all ends. And therefore, we don't have to fear. We don't have to succumb to fear now, even when persecution comes to our doors. Father, this is a corporate message for your people, for the saints of the Most High, but there's something in here for every single one of us individually, whether that is turning over the places in our lives, money, sexuality, career, whatever it is, that one thing that we won't give to you, maybe that's it. Father, maybe we are, someone in here is struggling with finances, family, health struggles, May this word encourage them with the eternal hope that though we suffer, you never leave our side. You're always with us, and the day will come. The day will come that will be so glorious and so victorious that Paul writes, our suffering here is but a light, momentary affliction. So, Father, call our vision higher and fix it on the glory that is to come that we may live as ambassadors now, bringing the good news to a dark and lonely culture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.